Welcome back to the Eater Upsell podcast from the Vox Media Podcast Network. My name is Daniel Gini. I'm a producer here, and I'm joined by Eater's Editor-in-Chief, Amanda Clute. Hi, Dan. Hey, Amanda, what is on the docket for today? So today on the Upsell, we are going to talk about two people who are running food businesses in the right way. People who care a lot about corporate culture for businesses and how to treat employees right. I think over the last few months, we've been reminded that the restaurant industry can be a really tough place for employees. Uh, sexual harassment is mm-hmm. prevalent. There's a lot of bullying and hostility. Uh, it can be hard to get a job with benefits and support. And we are going to talk to two women who provide support and benefits and think about the employees before the profits. Uh, but they still make money. The point of this whole thing is that it is possible. It is possible. It's yeah. not It's not impossible to have a restaurant group or a food operation that runs like a real business or like a real company. It's just something that you have to be, and that both these women are, hyper, hyper conscious of, maybe before anything else. Yeah, it takes effort. Yeah, I think it just does take a lot of effort. I mean, I think Aaron at one point says, like, it's hard to, you know, you, you spend all day making granola and you, you get home and you want to just go to sleep or watch TV. Yeah. But instead you have to think about what is your vision statement? How can I support my employees? Yeah. So we are going to be speaking to Erin Patinkin. She is the co-founder of Ovenly, a Brooklyn based bakery. She has about half a dozen shops now and 60 full-time employees. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk to her about hiring and setting up the corporate infrastructure for what could be a very big company. And after Erin, we are talking to Martha Hoover, who is a restaurant titan in Indianapolis. She is indeed. Someone who does not get enough attention as somebody who has built an amazing corporate culture for her 400 plus employees. 400 employees. Yeah. And has been doing it for over 30, almost 30 years. Yep. So we are going to talk to Aaron about starting from what she calls a little cookie business to kind of a major company, how she has instilled values throughout the way and how she has created a culture that she's proud of. And then... We're going to talk to Martha about how to maintain what she's done 30 mm-hmm. years on, and especially how to uh, safeguard your employees from sexual harassment and bullying and, and all kinds of hostile treatment. So even in this dark world, there, there is are, hope. There is hope. We found the two people. And it's fun, too. There are interesting, there are fun, cool takeaways. There's uh, Aaron shares some cool hiring tips. Yeah. I learn, I learn a lot, and um, I now have a couple of new role models. I hope you do, too. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and please share it with your friends and Mm -hmm. family and people you love. Also, feel free to tweet about it or put it on Facebook. And if you have any questions for us, send them to upsell at eater.com. We answer every single email. So let's hop in to our conversation with Aaron. I would say I would say that's probably was year four that we started getting really really serious into into that kind of building of corporate goals values mission in a codified and institutionalized way, which may sound like super corporate-y, but mm-hmm. it's not. Like you have to do that, and right. people really, it's a way. And we've discovered that it's really a way to hire people too. You know, if people really see eye to eye with you on on your values, it's a great way to to uh, vet people through the interview process too. Before you guys decided that you were a corporate culture and you decided you had to go through all these steps to create an atmosphere that you liked, did you see evidence of toxicity creeping into your staff and like were you hearing about problems? Well, no, not really. But I think think where we've made mistakes is in hiring. 
Um, I think it's really hard to go from being only like the founder owners, leaders of everyone to the founders, owners and leaders of the managers. Um, And I think us, we had a lot of misses when we were hiring higher level people. It's been very difficult. Um, I think the greatest tool in our tool shed is we are quick to fire. We just if if someone is not displaying our values and this has been true for since the beginning we we do let them go i mean we we are not people who sit in the kitchen and yell at people and berate people which mm-hmm. unfortunately we have hired some staff in the in the back of the house who come out of a restaurant culture where that is how pe- they have been trained um and we just immediately nix that um you is know that, i think is that easier said than done for me no i i mean i think that you just have to be it's firing someone is the worst. I mean, it feels terrible. No one wants to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think anyone who thinks that firing someone is easy is has cool. some sort of bent <laughs> towards sociopathy. But, you know, it's so hard because a lot of times even the people who we've let go, who we maybe don't like their management side or something is wrong. A lot of times we might like the people. Um, so I think it's really difficult to do. But you ultimately you have to make sure you're accomplishing your mission and your vision and that your corporate culture and the values that you're working to create are not compromised. I think sometimes it's hard too because you know uh, when you're when you have 60 staff for example, I think there it's you kind of want to step back and say I'm not going to have my hands in this so mm-hmm. much. But at the same time, you know, that's your job. Like that you you have to you have to make sure that that you're training people to express your values. And if they're not, then you listen to your staff. And we have an open door policy too. So um, if people feel uncomfortable going to their manager with the situation, they actually can come to Ag and I. That kind of leads me into the the harassment conversation. You wrote an op-ed about how you guys have dealt with sexual harassment and just, I guess, bullying and harassment in general at Evanly. Can you talk a little bit about the incident that you wrote about? Every company is going to have a situation. You know, this is, I think that it's how you deal with it that's important. So we had an employee who actually was awesome that we loved on a general, you know, generally he did a really good job. Um, And he decided to tell a really inappropriate joke in the kitchen when I happened to be there. I asked him to stop. It was derogatory towards women it made me feel extremely uncomfortable and he said okay fine and then I was washing my hands or something at the sink and he told another joke that was worse and louder and I just with my general manager at the time I was like this can't happen and I feel like this is threatening to me and I don't like this tone I don't like how this is happening I pulled him out and I was like listen or the first time I I pulled him aside and was like listen this is bothering me and this is why I really don't want you to talk like this in the kitchen 10 minutes later again another joke pulled him aside and fired him because it just I think one of the things too is that if I had not done that when everyone saw that I had Mm -hmm. pulled him aside to say hey listen you know we have a there's no office in our kitchen so I had to pull him physically outside talk to him he went back in started telling more jokes and it was just clearly to sort of get my goat and I felt that if I didn't let him go that was sending a message to the other staff that was that I wasn't committed to anti-harassment or, you know, we keep talking about how we want to have this empathetic culture where people treat each other well. And I really felt in that moment that if I hadn't done that, I would have been letting people down. And so we had to let them go. And it was hard because same situation it was actually a very valuable staff member. Generally, um, he 
chose to behave in a way that he knew was against their values, and it just wasn't acceptable to me. Interestingly, what I don't mention in the article is about a month later, he wrote me an apology email. So, you know, I think that he knew that what he was doing was not okay, and for for whatever reason, I don't know if it was a power play or what it was, continued. but, you know, in that situation, after we let him go, my GM and I actually went back in the kitchen and explained to our staff what had happened mm-hmm. because we didn't want people to just say like, oh, they're unfair. They're just firing from no reason. He was actually having kind of making these jokes with other, of our sta- other staff members. And she felt she felt like she had gotten him fired in some sort of way. And I was like, no, listen, this is totally about our culture and our values and what we're trying to promote. And I think she understood after that. But, you know, it's it's, the, it's there have been. There have been very few of those type of situations in our kitchen, which is really I'm really thankful for. Um, but, you you know, our attitude is if anything comes up, we address it right away, because if you don't, then that's what leads to toxic situations. What about just anger, like the kind of anger that we associate with the chef world, the kitchen world? We learned our lesson. We've hired a few people um where we've had to let them go because there has been that sort of situation that the there have been two times that that have happened that's happened with us in the past where we've hired leaders who not necessarily anger all the time but sort of favoritism or like you know we're going to drive people to work as you know and not listen to music and work's not fun it's just getting this done that kind of attitude doesn't always blend well with us and obviously we want to get the work done and we want to want people to work hard and quickly, but there's, there are different ways of promoting that type of, um, ethic in your staff. So, you know, I think generally we've been, again, we've been lucky because we hire, we review our values with people and we say, this is what we're looking for. This is the type of management we expect. We always say firm, but fair, firm, but fair. Mm-hmm. Um, but not yelling at people. Um, I think that just is demoralizing. I don't, I don't. I just don't think that's leadership when people are screaming at other people. But you know, even in those situations where we've had to let people go, it's not like the chefs had their heart in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. It was their training that they were reflecting. But we've also learned from that. So now, when we interview people for high-level positions, we say, "What is your management style?" There's a gentleman by the name of Richard Corain who has been with Union Square Hospitality Group forever. He's amazing, and. You know, now that we're growing, I sat down with him one day and I was like, how do you handle you have so many staff like you guys are amazing at training. What do you do? And he was like, well, we ask these emotional intelligence questions when we do high level hires. And he gave them to me and they're brilliant because what, what are they? Uh, what is the biggest misconception people have about you? So it's not like what's your biggest weakness? It's like, how are you perceived? And mm. is it in line with who you are and mm-hmm. why? That shows emotional intelligence. That right. shows who you are. Uh What's the last gift you gave to anyone for any reason shows generosity um, and who you admire for any reason. And that really shows kind of like selflessness. And we've it's been it's fascinating what wow. people answer to those questions. And, uh, you know, if someone says eh, iPod for my kids, I'm like, Meh. If, uh, <laughs> which has happened. And it, what's it was, the best answer you've gotten to that? Um, our retail director, Jody, who's amazing, uh, I was like, what's the last gift you gave to anyone for any reason? She's like, well, I knit this koozie for my best friend who's the most amazing friend. And she just started to cry in the interview. And I was like, you're hired. <laughs> you know, it just she had such love for this person and obviously also spent time knitting, a you know, a scarf for a friend. And I was like, that's these are good signs. So um, but we've had people who say things like, I don't know. I'm like, just. 
think of something. You know, <laughs> that's interesting that you, you know. What's you, been a red flag? Um, we had one person say. iPods. <laughs> and we had one person say, like, who do you admire most? Uh, this one person said, my wife. But I didn't realize that I really admired her until like a year ago when I stopped working for a year and I realized all she did. And I was like, no. how long have you been married? And he was like, 12 years. So I was like, oh, Jesus. man. Yeah, not, not, you, but, not yeah. you guy. He thought that was a really nice answer. Probably, yeah, it too. was a really nice answer, though. <laughs> it was a really nice answer. But I was, you know, I was just like, that's interesting. That wasn't the only reason he didn't get the job. But um, Yeah, so we do these, we ask these questions that are personal in interviews. And um, I think the other thing is we check references. Mm-hmm. Shockingly, mm-hmm. something p- so simple that people don't do. Um, and, you know, that's a very interesting thing. I don't know if you guys ever have to do that. But mm-hmm. when you check references and someone is super short and was like, yes, I worked with them. And right. that's it. And you're like, <laughs> OK, I got it. I get the point uh, here. Yeah, exactly. So I think references really matter a lot to us, too. And what about HR? Did you ever bring someone on? Did you train in it? Um, so my... Because Agatha and I both manage people, you know, you get some sense of what HR is. And if you like we came from really professional backgrounds where we had handbooks, we had HR departments, we kind of knew how that operated. I had taken some classes in HR in grad school and we have investors and one of my investors, um, his HR director helped me, you know, develop our handbook, uh, talked me through some issues. And it's really just about educating ourselves and reading. Mm -hmm. And then... um, You know, and we always felt that that was a really important piece because part of what we do is we have these open hiring practices. So that means you can come work for us without a resume. So a lot of people who work with us come out of incarceration backgrounds or or incarceration situations, I should say. Uh, Some are political refugees. Um, Some people have gaps in their resumes. Um, Some people may have zero experience in the kitchen or in the front of house before coming to us. So that we have... um, been proactive in uh, dealing with human resource issues because we have such a diverse staff with really diverse needs. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect? Do you recruit people specifically for that? Was that part of your mission to make sure to bring in so many people from different backgrounds? Well, you know, it, this is, it's kind of twofold. So, um, man, I don't, I think it was 2014. Um, it was one of those moments where I then were like, "Oh, we're not going to go out of business tomorrow. We're not failing. Wow, uh, what are we doing?" You know. And Agatha w- used to be a social worker. Um, she worked with people who had mental health and addiction issues, mostly veterans. And I had come out of this sort of like social justice and arts field, and we both started having these conversations with each other. Like, are we just making cookies? Do we have any other goals besides that? Because that just doesn't feel like super substantial to us. And that is a fine goal for any other company. That was just our feeling was we weren't sure that that was what we wanted to do. And so very serendipitously, at the same time, we had a client uh, who's still a client named Jeffrey Golia. And he is a social worker at an awesome organization called Getting Out and Staying Out. And they work with formerly incarcerated and justice-involved young men, ages 14 to 25, I believe. And he approached us and said, would you ever consider hiring one of my guys? And we said, of course. And so we work with a bunch of organizations now. But these are all organizations that have job training programs. But the reason we decided to do that is because, you know, one, uh, we just don't like the systemic marginalization of people who have varying backgrounds, whether they are 
their immigration status or their if they've been incarcerated or if they're people of color or if they're they've had a gap in a resume for personal reasons. And we felt like we didn't want to be part of that system. Um, so that was that's just a personal moral code. So that was one of the reasons we did it. And the second one is super business, like a big business reason, which is it provides us with access to labor. When we have job partners, that means we can turn to our job partners per, first, who we have relationships with, who understand the type of employee that we're looking for, and say, hey, we have an opening. Is there someone that you can fill? And a lot of times, it's also financially beneficial to the company. Um, for example, getting out and staying out will provide us with uh, an employee for six weeks as a full-time paid intern. Mm. Um, so that's awesome. That's awesome for us because that's a trial period, right? In an internship is in commitment to employment. If the person's awesome, we'll hire them at the end. And we've had both situations where we've hired people and not hired people. And um, you might have a. You've been in this industry for at least eight years. What do you? And I waited s- tables forever in my teens. So too. even longer. Yeah. What do you think other companies are doing wrong, or what missteps do you think people are making? I think that there are a few things. I think in smaller businesses, it's so easy to just say, like, I got to get the bread out the door. I got to get the granola bars out the door. I can only think about making the product and selling the product, Mm -hmm. making the product and selling the product. Um, And I get that. I totally empathize with that. But you, as a leader, have to get out of that. And even if it's these things aren't you don't have to be a rocket scientist at corporate culture to create a culture. You can write down on a piece of paper, I want people to be treated with respect and with kindness. That's my culture. Okay, now I'm going to tell everyone about it. And guys, this is how this is this is the culture we're trying to cultivate. It's that simple. Like you don't have to read a ton of business books to do this kind of thing, but you just have to take the time to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's I it's so hard to take that time when you might have 10 free hours in the week and you just want to nap or, Mm -hmm. you know, watch a movie. Uh, So I think that's one misstep. And I think the other thing is people, and this is just the way business has been functioning in the United States for the past 50 or 60 years is people only look at the bottom line. And I think that, you know, this is your values. If you're only if you only care about your bottom line, that's you. Be you. But if you care about your staff, if you care about growing the company, if you even if you don't care about growing the company, if you want to be a mom and pop shop, but if you really care about your staff and you really care about how people are treated, then I think you need to financially strategize on how to provide the benefits and programs necessary for people to succeed. And I don't care if you're using a partnering with a job organization or not Mm -hmm. i think that's just generally and um i mean how many people do you guys know that just hate their jobs like i I, as a leader i don't want to be i don't want to hear people say like i hated working at that place i want to hear people say you know i left but and it was hard but i respect the company at the very least Mm -hmm. at best i want to hear them say i loved it you know but i i think that we just care about people's reaction to the company and i think it shows in the product. I think it shows in the customer service. I think it does impact the bottom line when you treat people well. And you mentioned benefits. Can you talk about the benefits you guys have? Yeah. So um, we've always had health insurance. So from day one, we had health insurance vacation days and we always wanted to do that. And that was really uh, a lot cheaper eight years ago. Um, But 
it's something that we've been committed to is providing the most basic benefits for people. And, and you that's know, rare, right? Um, I think, uh, yes, because we're only recently over 50 people. So there's no mandate if you have under 50 <laughs> full-time or under 50 employees to have mm-hmm. uh, corporate insurance. Yeah, if you're over 50. If you're you, over 50, you, you do. do yeah, for full-timers. Exactly. Um, yeah, so that's rare. So we had, I mean, we offered company-sponsored health insurance from the first hire. Hmm. Very, very rare. Uh, and vacation days from the first hire, which is also rare. rare. It took us a long time to be profitable enough to provide better benefits, but when we had an amazing, awesome staff member named Marion Hamilton who moved to Cincinnati, which was very sad, a few years ago, she um, got pregnant while she was at Oven Lane. We're like, oh, time to create a primary <laughs> secondary caregiver leave policy and so we did a bunch of research into that i got some policies from friends who worked at much bigger corporations and i was like okay we're gonna just be more liberal than all of these Mm -hmm. and so that was kind of our our uh direction because we did some cost benefit analysis we're like not a lot of people are going to be having babies so if it was like every year we're gonna have 10 babies it might be difficult but we kind of figured most of our staff is under 35 maybe we've got a couple kids a year and we can afford that. So we have a really generous primary and secondary caregiver leave that includes like up to six months you can take off uh, from work. Um, I think four months paid. And I think that's something that people don't take into account when they build their business is that not that many people are going to get pregnant and leave uh, for that amount of time. Right. But what you earn back and their loyalty is so much more worth it. Of course. Like, it's so much worth it. You're investing this money in them, but they're going to stay with you. And you know what? Even if they leave, I want people to be able to bond with their kids. Yeah. Like, I don't care. You want to leave after you come, you don't come back, fine. Like, did you get time to bond with your child so that child grows up more loved and, like... Yeah, better m- member of society. M- yeah. Awesome. I would love to be a part of that. Like, I, d- you know... I don't know. I just that's not my my biggest concern. My I really feel as a woman too. Uh, I think it's really hits close to home that I if I ever have a kid, I want to be able to take the time off too. Well, and in your field, if you have a company with fewer than fifty people, you don't even have to do anything. Right. Like right no now, no FMLA under yeah, fifty. Yeah. Right now, there's the Family Medical Leave Act, which means you have to give twelve weeks off unpaid. Uh, if you have more than 50 people, but everybody else, which is a lot of independent restaurants, they don't have to do anything. And well, now there's don't. a New York paid family. Oh, now there's in so New you, York. Yeah, here. in New York, you do have to give eight weeks this year, I think 12 weeks next year. Yeah, and there are certain other states where there are better rules, like yeah. California, California. I think Washington, D.C. has something. Seattle has something. Boston yeah. has something. Um, but nationally, like at the federal level, there's nothing you're yeah. really required to do. I think only the United States and like Papua New Guinea don't yeah. have Yeah, we're the only industrialized something. nation yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, it's really depressing. But um, anyway, good yeah. for you. And you want Avonlea to be the biggest bakery in America? Yeah, we want to be the neighborhood bakery in every neighborhood. And what do you think it's going to be like when you open up in a different city in terms of keeping all your values? You know, I think that's a challenge. I think this is why now, like we're building a corporate infrastructure right now that's way too big for our place, but won't be in eight months. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that includes hiring. You know, we have had someone in this position and then we kind of took a step back and we're redoing the position, but um, creating like a director of uh, radical responsibility is something that we're looking at. We were calling it like HR director and then impact director. And really it's like that person who's all about 
the human side of human resources. And mm-hmm. so I think that is so key for us to build something in another city and also working hard. I, Agatha, my business partner, and I have to really work hard at it. And, you know, that's where the leadership piece is. We need to make sure that whoever we hire, however we build this, that whoever is coming on understands those values and understands what we're trying to build. And if they veer from it, we've got to let them go. That answers all my questions. Aaron Patinkin. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. I'm Sean Ramosverum. I'm the host of Today Explained, a new show from Vox. It's an all-killer, no-filler daily news explainer that'll drop every afternoon. But not on the weekend. Our show's going to explain the news every way we know how. Clips, radio drama, maybe even a song. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Martha Hoover is a restaurateur based in Indianapolis. She owns over a dozen businesses and has about 400 employees right now, which is crazy. Uh, She is known for being generous in her benefits and also in her training of employees. And we're going to ask her mm-hmm. a little bit about how she set up her corporate. Well, culture. also she was she's a former sex crimes attorney. She, yeah, she was part of the first ever sex crimes unit in Indianapolis and prosecuting pedophiles, rapists, all kinds of nefarious, mm-hmm. disgusting people. So she has a really intense background. So here's Martha Hoover talking about what system she has in place to maintain the quality of culture that she started with. Well, you know, we do sexual harassment training, which is a very HR thing to do. We, By the way, we have an HR department. I was, have been shocked to read nationally about these nationally known restaurants and very large restaurant groups that do not have formal HR departments. So that's one thing that we've had forever. Um, and, and I think that's a significant channel for people. But we also, we we go more. We go beyond just having HR and doing sexual harassment training. Um, we also have a, an email site that's, uh, that goes to say, I think it's say something, see something, say something at Cafe Parachu. And anybody, if they see, hear, witness something, feel something, even if it's something that's relatively maybe innocuous, they can email. All those emails come straight to me. So they don't go through a filter of an HR person, an an admin, a restaurant manager, because a lot of times, as you know, management is the problem. So I have 14 restaurants, soon to be 16 restaurants. We have over 400 employees. I can't be in every restaurant at every hour that we're operating. We also have a production kitchen that's open seven days a week, almost 24 hours a day. I can't be there either. So I really depend on employees self-regulating and letting me know when there's an issue that needs my attention. And that that email is active? You do receive emails on there? I do. I do. I received an email, and I can't give you too much detail in terms of that I would never give divulged names or the location for the purpose of this podcast, but I had an email several weeks ago about somebody who is relatively new to our company who was doing something that kind of creeped some of the women in our organization out. was not outright sexual harassment. You know, there, there was a lot of gray in this world, and it was in that gray zone. But they just wanted to ask me what I thought about it. 
I think they get a lot of comfort in knowing that, A, the emails come to me, and B, that I came from, uh, I, I was a lawyer in my past life, and I worked in a, in a, as a sex crimes prosecutor. So I kind of have that, uh, and I worked when I was doing sex crimes, a lot of my work was in screening cases. So we don't automatically jump in and say that there's a problem and fire people, but we're really good about listening to staff and what they're issues are or perceived mm-hmm. issues are and we never doubt somebody when at their word and we don't have problems with people being vindictive we don't have problems with people trying to game or manipulate we really get very in fact remarkably honest feedback from staff so what's your next step when you get that email next step is to reach out and to personally talk to the person to to talk to the to the person who is complaining or to talk to the person who is being who is the subject of the email um, and I always bring HR in it's not just me I've got a lot going on we all have lots of balls in the air so it's not like I drop everything and run to that restaurant and but we we're serious about these these complaints that come through um, and we do our own internal investigation and we find out what the source of problem is. Are there ever do they do these ever end in a situation where someone is not terminated? Yes, it ends in a, in situations that cross all that go through everything you can imagine um, to just sitting down with the two people involved and saying, "Hey, this is the problem. Let's work this out." To you know, doing something as um, radical as as terminating somebody. For cause, mm-hmm. um, but we always look into it. So, what would you recommend in a larger restaurant group when the head of the organization is not someone who is uh, formally trained as a sex crimes lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that just happens to have been, you know, my circumstance. <laughs> no, um, but if it's like the if it's some old school chef and he hears this and he thinks I want to set this thing up, is it is it going to work in the same way? Like, isn't part of this? that you are listening? Well, I do think a lot of it is that this old-school chef or an old-school restaurant manager, uh, here's the thing. It's not just old-school. I think it, I think the restaurant system itself is in so many ways broken. And the only thing that can fix it are restaurateurs and chefs themselves. And people should want to lead better. Um, and what they should do is let their staff know that they have their back, their staff's back, um, and without naming names, I'm, I've just been shocked when people do not protect their staff. If you know that there's something predatory or toxic happening in your company, how you don't want to correct that immediately just blows my mind. That is really bad. It's bad leadership. It's bad stewardship, and it's bad business. Turnover and waste are killers in the restaurant business, and the restaurant business is marginally profitable. It's not like it's, you know, I don't know, a bank or something that just rolls in money. Um, You have to be really careful of what kind of waste you are incurring. And, of course, we talk about food waste and we talk about waste of, you know, environmental waste. Well, there's a lot of waste in people, too, that is very costly to restaurants. Um, I cannot afford to have 
the turnover that most restaurants have. I don't think any restaurant should. I think they should really look at that. And the more you connect with the staff, the happier and more secure they feel, not just financially, but that they are coming to to work and they're coming into a safe environment that gives them a voice and gives them some power. Well, I think those are just kind of overall very basic business principles. You mentioned that you've had HR from the beginning. Did you bring no, on not, a, Amanda, not quite from the beginning, mm-hmm. but once we had three restaurants. That's when you I, brought someone on? That's when I, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was like, we have to do better here. Right. I think that is a lot of the problem here is that people don't think about that until it's too late. Well, you know what else? I kind of realized pretty early on that people expected me as the owner of the business to have all the answers to everything. And I realized, and I don't know what this was about my personality, but I realized very early on that I didn't have all the answers, but that I could attract the quality of talent that would help me develop answers. So one of the pieces I knew that was missing is I I was not an HR expert. Even though I had a legal background, I had never worked in a restaurant. I'd never really managed people. I was kind of winging it, and I needed some experts in my, in my you know, hip pocket. So bringing somebody in who had that expertise was critically important. And interestingly, the HR person that we've had for the last several years um, is somebody who, although she's got, a master, she's got an MBA, she's got a master's in business, she came from the restaurant industry. She started out at a very young age, an entry-level position, and put herself through college and graduate school, being a bartender and a server, and then got into management and kind of tripped into the HR part. And then she actually worked for a very toxic company, um, a a large, a brew pub type company um, that had a very toxic culture. And she just got to the point where she couldn't condone what they were doing, and she reached out to us. Um, so I, there are even, you know, not everyone in the restaurant world wants to be a manager, but a lot of people want to be in an executive position, and she's the perfect example. Hmm. So when she, when people come to her in our company, they know she's got a lot of credibility. She's walked in their shoes. She's dealt with, you know, sick children and having to get to work um, as a server. She's dealt with the management part, with the bartending part. She really understands every aspect of the restaurant, and I think that's critically important, too, to have someone in HR who has a lot of restaurant operations experience. Right. So it it seems like you, you probably know a lot about what's going on in the Indianapolis restaurant scene. How do you interact with other restaurant owners and business owners when you know that they have toxic environments? Well, you know, it's not so much how I, I would like to think that I'm always professional and kind to people, but it's I like supporting good businesses. I like supporting other good businesses, whether they're restaurants or retail or other businesses. And I was asked something fairly similar to your question before, and my answer was one of my favorite companies. We live in the Midwest. It's cold here, so I wear Patagonia. It's one of my go-to companies that I buy from. And one of the reasons I support them is their quality of their product. But the other reason is that it's a really well-run company. They really believe in all the stuff I've just talked about. They treat their people with respect and kindness, and their people have a lot of pride of what they're doing. They 
they do right for their company. Mm-hmm. So my example is if I found out that Patagonia was lying about the things that they were doing for their staff, I wouldn't support them anymore. It would really offend me. So I I really believe in the power of, you know, people talking with their pocketbook and spending money and supporting mm. companies that are like-valued, and that's kind of what I do. I'm really mostly concerned about what goes on within the four walls of my company. Mm. Um, and, of course, when people come to us, they almost always are like, this is a breath of fresh air. But I don't feel – I'm not a regulator. I'm not trying to manage anyone else's business. I just wouldn't run my business the way so many people are running theirs. How does it feel that uh, a lot of this information about toxic environments and, you know, not just in the restaurant business, but all over um, Mm -hmm. America is coming out now? Does it feel like something you've been conscious of for a long time? Yes. And I think, again, my background as a sex crimes prosecutor, you know, when when you're in that position, it's a position of complete power. And I was always very uncomfortable with having that amount of power over people's lives. And I also realized very early on when I was working in the criminal justice system that if people could justify homicide and rape, people justify what they do. And if they could justify homicide and rape and child molestation, those were the areas that I mostly was involved with, that they could justify treating an employee poorly. Um, So I and I also believe that because I was so hyper aware of what was going on in the world regarding these extraordinarily violent and abusive things, that I was just also hyper aware with my business and creating a culture that would not in any way, shape, or form, foster that kind of behavior. Awesome. Well, well, thank you for doing everything that you do. Thank you. Thank you for including my voice. I really appreciate it. And thank you for shining a little bit of light on Parashu and, and Indianapolis. I appreciate that, too. Of course. Great. So, again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Eater Upsell. If you loved it, we would be so grateful if you could go on to the platform of your choice and rate subscribe send us an email upsell at eater.com with any feedback this episode was recorded in new york at the vox media studios with my co-host and eaters eic aka editor-in-chief manda clute our studio team is miles yule Paige bethman carrie clements alex allreich and pedro alvira and the executive producer of eater multimedia is Maureen Gionone Fitzgerald. 